0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Morales, and I am so glad to be here with Dr. Ben Vincent III, author of Before Mestizaje, The Frontiers of Race and Caste in Colonial Mexico, a 2017 Cambridge University Press book. Dr. Vincent is both provost and executive vice president at Case Western Reserve University and an accomplished historian of Latin America. He holds a doctorate from Columbia University, has been awarded a number of fellowships, and is the 2019 Howard F. Klein Book Prize in Mexican History recipient for his work in Before Mestizaje, which, since its publication, has opened new dimensions on race in Latin America by examining extreme caste groups and colonial Mexico. In his book, Before Mestizaje, Dr. Vincent traces extreme caste experiences, bringing about a broader understanding of the connection between Mestizaje and the colonial caste system. Here, one sees how before the term Mestizaje emerged as a primary concept in Latin America, an earlier precursor existed. This colonial form of racial hybridity in case an analastic caste system allowed some people to live through multiple racial lives. Hence, the great fusion of race that swept through Latin America and defined its modernity carries an important corollary. Mesisaje, when viewed at its roots, is not just about mixture, but also about dissecting and reconnecting lives as such experiences may have carved a special ability for some Latin American populations to reach across racial groups to relate with and understand multiple racial perspectives. This overlooked deep history is a legacy that can be built upon in modern times. Dr. Vincent, I am completely honored to meet with you today to discuss your book, Before Macistaje, The Frontiers of Race and Cast in Colonial Mexico. I thoroughly welcome you to the New Books Network.
0: Powell, thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be here with you today.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Vinson. Now, before we delve into questions on Before Mesisaje, would you mind beginning by saying a few words about yourself, your background in performing needed research for this book, and the organization of Before Mesisaje?
0: Certainly, Powell. Uh Again, thank you so much for giving me the chance to speak with you. You know, I, I've dedicated my career to studying questions of race in Latin America, and it's really configured into all of my my writing and my previous books. And throughout it all, Powell. There's been a nagging question in Latin American history about whether in colonial times race mattered at all, if anyone actually felt any kind of racial identity. So this is a question that has has guided and informed a lot of my work, and that's including this book here before Mestizaje, because arguably, Powell, racial identity became harder the more extreme one was mixed. And it's really hard in a society like the United States, you know, where, where biraciality, you know, these this is kind of accepted and where, you know, there are also hard racial anchors around blackness and whiteness that make reference points clearer. It's a lot harder in, in societies where there were more fluid boundaries. And, you know, the more mixed you were, the more questions could emerge. So, Powell, before Mestizaje is essentially, it's a book on a quest, We we all know that racial identity in Latin America, it it, it has been a very fluid matter. And and to some extent, it really still is. We all know that a national ideology has greatly informed the question and expression of race uh, in country after country in Latin America. What we know less about Powell is how this came to be. And, and what i mean by this is a in, in a deep sense that really deep historical set of origins of the current state of being so my book is on a quest to do just that taking one of the most complicated concoctions of racial mixture and it starts asking questions does this have anything to do with current patterns how and why to do that requires a very very nuanced understanding of colonial history And and the subject of racial mixture, and even more specifically, caste mixture, because race was still very much in formation in the colonial period, and caste, in some ways, was far more set and more settled back then in the colonial times. So the first part of the book gives you a fast history of race in Mexico in colonial times. Looks at the ingredients of mixture that is blackness, whiteness, Asianness, indigenousness. Then we start to look at how Mestizaje, literally, that is the ideology of racial mixture, how that was configured in its most classically understood state starting in the early 20th, early 20th century when, when Mestizaje started to be born. Then the book goes back. It bounces back and forth. It goes back again, way back to the dawn of colonial times to examine how caste came to be in the colonial world. And to look at its impact, it goes on to then look at a very close level at the experiences of the wild caste categories that a lot of people believe they were just fiction. These are the lobos, that means wolves, moriscos, the Moorish-looking people, coyotes, literally coyote, and the like. It starts to look at the nomenclature, looks at their jobs, looks at at how they were distributed in, in, in the geography of Mexico, how they behaved in the context of marriage how we can understand them when they were being bigamous. uh, uh, Basically, looking for as much as I could find in the colonial record and archives about these populations. Then the book zooms us through the 19th century to trace patterns of a heritage and a legacy as to how caste, thanks to the ways in which these groups altered the thinking about caste in the colonial period, how caste has contributed to the legacy and meaning of mestizaje and racial mixture in a more modern sense. So in a sense, Paul, this is really how this book is structured and, and how and why I came to it.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Vincent, for providing this introduction. And now I am eager to delve into questions on Before Mestizaje. So noted in, from beginning to end, is the preoccupation over Rachel purity, or term blood cleansing or limpieza de sangre. Could you provide an overview of this as it relates to particular stories in before Zahe, such as attempted revolts and religious or non-religious interpretations on such?
0: Paul, that's a fantastic question. Uh, I, I, Limpieza de sangre, Paul, is a very interesting concept. Now, it actually comes from preoccupations in the Christian world about how Judaism and Islam how it posed a challenge to the message and to the creed of Catholicism. Now, Powell, it was a cleave and a separator in those early times. It goes way back to the 1400s, as Spain, you know, was was unifying under a succession of rulers, and the Catholic kings. These are Ferdinand and Isabella. They, they were very important to this process of bringing Spain into a unity. So, as Spain was trying to be more united, those people who had tainted blood. These were people who were seen quintessentially as outsiders to the emergingly strong Christian kingdom and emergingly strong Christian state. Unity in Spain, uh, which also involved expelling the Moors, was to be achieved on the backs of these divisions, insiders and outsiders in a society. And it was a strong lesson, Powell, for the history of race. So as as Spain was starting to, uh, to unify territorially into, into, a, into a kingdom that, was be, that could be recognized today if you were going through Spain, you probably couldn't recognize it back in the 1400s, early in the 1400s. But as it started to coalesce, uh, this tool of limpieza de sangre, this tool of unity was actually a, it was a scalpel of disunity. Uh, because again, it's creating unity by creating disunity, all of this would come to help Process differences of race and caste. So, Powell, the idea of limpieza de sangre then started to travel and it mapped itself onto socio racial categorizations. Uh, and, and in some ways, this is the, the deep birth of caste. As groups became separated and as they distanced themselves from whiteness, in much the same way that groups became separated and distance away from Christianity uh, this was the process the stew in which this stuff was brewing and as with Christian Christianity there was a redeeming quality so people in early modern Spain they could become Christians and and they could convert this was possible with limpieza de sangre so these same principles then started to slip over into caste. People could move up and down the scale as they became closer to and eventually white. The road for blacks was harder than it was for natives. Now, you mentioned about rebellions. You know, that Because of that hard road, because it was harder for these populations to, to, to jump over that hurdle, rebellions could happen. Now, curiously, uh, Powell, r- religion was always important in this process. You know, natives uh, could could become converts to Christianity, and their offspring, when they started to intermarry with whites, they could also begin a slow journey into whiteness. So, what do I mean by this? So, um, uh, limpieza de sangre again sets the, sets the the table for how caste could operate. Caste then borrows from limpieza de sangre, and part of what's possible is a redeeming quality, uh, where it was harder for blacks to be redeemed, easier for natives. Natives could be redeemed religiously, and they could be redeemed into whiteness. So, um, look, this is this is really the table, um, uh, and uh, and this is uh, how all of these early origins start to come into play. How limpieza de sangres is is the in some ways again sets the table for caste, and how caste then uh, uh, really uh, takes what was set by limpieza de sangre to the next level. Thanks for that question, Paul.
1: Of course, thank you so much for explaining that. And moving towards the middle in Chapter 4, The Jungle of Casta Extremes, there's the interesting story of Juan Domingo Orreado being both a champion of the pure Black and Moreno cause, assisting his Black confraternity and local Catholic church, but also being a slave owner. Can you delve more into the juxtaposed reality and possible-like cases in Mexico City at this time?
0: Paul, I'm I'm glad you brought this case up. For me, Juan Domingo Rayado is a fascinating and complicated case. You know, the the hundreds of pages that actually make up his will and testament and the struggles that happened over his estate, which is some of this document in this book, this makes him perhaps the best documented member of these extreme castes that I I talk about in this book, perhaps in, in all of colonial Mexican history. Now, as you rightly allude to, he was complicated because he was mixed. He was a former slave, but through his connections with the royal treasury, his master worked there. He was then able to carve out a career where he earned enough money, not just to set out on his own, Powell, but also to buy agricultural properties and slaves himself. He even managed to buy three homes in Mexico City. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty special. Now, he was not necessarily unusual, uh, Powell. Many ex-slaves bought other slaves. Now, from our modern standpoint, we, we might see this as very problematic, and I can understand why. But you've got to remember that these individuals, they were following the entrepreneurial model that was laid out for them. They were working the system, and they were trying to succeed like everyone else in the colonial world. Now, that these slaves were, probably, were likely treated very differently under black masters, that is probably something that took place more often than not. They weren't getting the same whip and chain. As, uh, as they were under uh, under other masters now as it turned out i think um, uh, you know juan domingo rayado fell into this category and, uh, picture this scene for a minute on the outskirts of mexico city he has these ranching and agricultural uh, properties one of them is producing charcoal um, and what happens is that they become a bit of a haven for ex-slaves and poor freedmen Out there in in the outskirts of Mexico City, they were raising donkeys and horses and mules and cattle. They grew potatoes, made barley, they made straw. Uh, And these individuals worked on his property, but they were enjoying a dignity and sovereignty that they wouldn't feel elsewhere. They couldn't find this elsewhere. So that Domingo Rayado was different could also be seen in his willingness to take in several orphans. He took in black and mulatto orphans who became his own children, since he and his wife, they, they, they naturally didn't have any children on their own. Now, as you say, Powell, Domingo Rayado was a devout Catholic. Could this be a source of his goodwill? Look, I don't know. But what seemed to be certain, Paul, was that he worshipped with other blacks, and that some of these blacks were mixed and some were not. And his church relations, and especially his confraternity. That's that's one of these religious organizations that's devoted to uh, a specific saint. So these church relations started to configure into his identity and his social network. He was surrounded, uh, uh, when he went to worship, he was surrounded by blacks from all stripes, all, all walks of life, rich, poor, slave, and free. And then he started to emerge as a leader among them. On his dying bed, Uh, This very complicated man, he willed his estate to his religious confraternity so that it may serve in perpetuity for blacks who had been originally born in Africa. And his dying wish, uh, which was honored, was also contested. A lot of other would-be social climbers in the black world of Mexico, they wanted a leg up and they started to want to control all of his properties and his riches and his estates. And for decades, there was wrangling over the property and his wealth. But the story remains an important window, pal. He was a slave, become slave owner, become black champion. Are these contradictions? Absolutely, pal. Maybe for us in this this 20th century, 21st century framework, but this was a fact of life in the colonial Mexican world. Very interesting uh, part of the story. Thank you again, pal. Yes,
1: thank you so much for that interesting and informative story. I really appreciate that. And moving midway into before Mestizaje, in chapter 5, titled Betrothed, Marrying Into the Extremes, details on 17th and 18th century Mexico City marriages is displayed. In such, one can gather information on the high monetary and educational cost in an official documented marriage where clerical fees amounted to nearly six weeks in ordinary laborers' salary and in which the betrothed had to display mastery over church doctrine. Could you share insight into extreme caste difficulty or ease in obtaining such an official document, and the transposing of casts in such process?
0: Oh, it's a tough question, Pal. You you don't make it easy on on uh, on an interviewee. Uh, but I'll be glad to answer that. The, the bottom line, Pal, being married wasn't easy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is a little bit of of an understatement. I think we we can all those of us who have spouses we can we we all know some of this. Uh, look, it's not just for the reasons that one would normally associate with 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 this it's look, not the normal life between a wife and husband. It was actually getting there. And at the end of the day, what I'm talking about is exactly what you say, the costs and the need the cost of being married, the cost of getting married and the need to know church doctrine along the way made some people say, hey, this isn't just this isn't worth it. So the, the indices of formal marriage among the extreme castes that, that I study in this book, they were probably pretty low. That means that there weren't a lot of a lot of these people getting married. Look, their jobs didn't allow much flexible income. Their levels of education meant that they probably didn't read. Only some of these individuals could sign their names, which, you know, in, in the colonial world, Powell, that was often taken as a sign of literacy. Uh, but it was, really wasn't a reliable guide because if you know how to sign your name, it doesn't necessarily mean you know how to read. So, again, the bottom line is that many castes were probably in consensual unions. Uh, and they were in good company, Powell, in the colonial world. A lot of people shared this fate. This makes it hard for a historian. When weddings did happen, now, these documents are a gold mine of information. I was able to track almost 400 of these marriages in the course of doing this book, and I looked at their marriage licenses. Um, I could hear the testimony of brides and grooms and the witnesses of these marriages in, in the archives. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how these individuals saw themselves, how they saw their commitment to their racial identity. What you see in the marriage record are ways in which people adhered to their racial identity, but also how that identity could shift. And it could shift as others looked at someone differently. They perceived them differently. Sometimes as these individuals themselves, they might think of themselves differently in one one situation to the next. All of this is incredibly valuable information for a historian, Uh, anyone who's really looking for any clues that will give us some insight into the social reality. So, in your very tough question, Pal, uh, these are the insights into uh, these extreme casts that one can get when you're able to get your hands on these documents that are hard to buy because they're expensive. They're hard to get because you have to know church doctrine. But when you get them, Pal, they're gold mine for a historian. Thanks again for that.
1: Yes, of course, and thank you for answering that so easily. And moving towards the end of chapter nine, uh, so this chapter brings about so many thoughts in which I could spend all day inquiring, however, to sum perhaps in one, and scanning over readings on Mexico's fight for independence, uh, Vicente Riva Palacio, uh, Bunis Alexander Von Humboldt, and Altamirano. Is there anything that you can sum to provide comparison with the Americas or parts of the Americas today?
0: Yes, you can. Um, and I, I thank you for this question. Um, I think I need to, uh, again, as I've done with some of these other questions, kind of give you a little bit more context, just to, to see, uh, to kind of see how this all stitches together. Um, the immediate comparison that I have is that in my work on the 19th century, one of the things I was actually trying to do was to understand how caste transformed from a set of practices, uh, from labels that characterize people, uh, and how it, how it matured from that in the colonial period into something else, and that took place really in the 19th century. How it started to float in the minds of intellectuals, the people that you mentioned, and become a fountain, if you will, of the ideology that is mestizaje. How how, how this caste started to stream into the consciousness and to set up patterns that would that would impact mestizaje. Um, uh, so the people that you cite, Riva Palacio, Bulnes, Lucas Alamán, Justo Sierra, Altamirano, and others. These were some of the towering intellectuals of their age. What they said mattered. What they wrote impacted thousands, if not millions. What they thought others would soon be invited to think. These individuals wrestled with the concept of caste on a very fundamental level. Early in the 19th century, they they were doing this. They started to say early in the 19th century that, that caste was a relic of a past age something that had to be overcome at all costs unless it damaged the emerging nation-state of Mexico. As time passed, some, think, some of these thinkers started to see even more into caste. In caste, they saw a metaphor that connected their past with their future. And they started to conceive of certain segments of the elite as being preservers of an old order. And they started to tag these individuals as fossils as elites who were enshrined in a caste or casta mentality that needed to be exorcised from Mexico. Now, as this started to mature, other intellectuals started to see even more. They began to reconcile that in the modern period, maybe caste hadn't disappeared at all, and that maybe the everyman, that is, the common man, that is, the most basic and fundamental and ordinary Mexican was, if anything, the manifestation of caste. So caste originally brought to the New World to marginalize and to separate people was in the 19th century, as these intellectuals started thinking about it, was possibly performing the very function of unifying and harmonizing the population of Mexico. So all of this background, Powell, to start to answer your question. Now, I don't know for a fact that this is the story in other Latin American countries, but I suspect, Powell, that there are overtones that need to be studied and examined in these, in these other places. Each country may have had its own particular path, but the road uh, led to a similar endpoint, and that endpoint is a harmonized understanding of racial unity built upon the foundations of understanding uh, that was made fully possible. By the caste regimes. Let me say that once again. This harmonized understanding of racial unity was built upon the foundations of of understanding that were made possible by the caste regime. So in a nutshell, I think that is um, some of the comparisons with other parts of the Americas that one could make, Latin America in particular. One could also start to turn the mirror a little bit on the United States. Now, I'm not going to do that in this interview. But um, there's a book out by Isabel Wilkerson that I think complements this work well in her book Cast, uh, which I would uh, invite people to read alongside this uh, to make your own comparisons.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Vincent, for providing context on this question and explaining it so well. And pointing to the post conclusion in Historian's Coda, Casa states of the mind. Can you speak on the story of your interaction and interview with Emiliano Coron Torres and his family regarding the equality of people of the community and absence of race, in contrast to their after interview interaction with one of the young boys by calling him a name in correlation to their perception of his skin tone?
0: Great question, Paula. This so after doing all of this archival research, um, you know, I, I I couldn't help but to reflect on. Um, the, the, the more current uh, period. And I was actually prompted to do this by, uh, when I delivered a series of lectures uh, on this book uh, up in at, at, at Cambridge at Harvard, uh, when I was asked by some students to say, you know, what does this all mean in, in, a, in a contemporary context? So I, w- I was taken back to, I guess this is 1995 or so, Powell, when I was out in the Western coast of Mexico in a place called the Costa Chica. And I did this interview with, as you mentioned, Emiliano, Emiliano um Colón Torres, and and you know while I was in the field, one of the things that struck me is that people they were constantly saying to me, Paul, that they said, look, there's no racial situation out here. People don't think in terms of race. You know, we're Christian, we're Mexican. Paul, when you hear those kinds of things, that is the ideology of mestizaje at work. Race doesn't matter. We are we are one nation. We are one people. We are Christian, etc. That is that is classic articulation of mestizaje. So, um, and look, I was also keeping company with the Trinidadian priest. So in some ways, uh, that was a very predictable response in terms of, you know, we're Christian. And then there's a very Mexican response that we are Mexican. But as soon as the cameras were off um, and uh, a young boy sprinted across the, uh, the, the room, uh, we were actually outside on the veranda. Uh, sprinted across this dirt veranda, and his mom said, "Oye, negro, ven acá, ven acá." That means, um, "Hey, uh, blackie, little black, uh, black, you know, come here, come here." I was flabbergasted. You know, I'd spent—I don't, I can't remember if it was an hour, two hours—talking with this family, and you know, I, when I was talking about race, they—they they seemed like there was—it was incomprehensible some of the things we were talking about. Yet in this breath. Um, this terminology was being used. And I asked, "What? what's, you know, Hey, you know, we just spent this time talking about this. Well, what does that mean that you just use this term Negro, um, black? And the response was, Oh, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm using this terminology because um, he's the darkest of our children and we want to get him ready for school and where he might be teased for, for his color, for being black. And so right then and there you have a juxtaposition. Right then and there you have the way in which this deep history of casta kind of works and seeps into the modern ideology of Mestizaje. Because in the context of this interview, uh, again, Mestizaje classic was described. And in the context of the post-interview, Casta classic seemed to be expressed. Um, And so that's really uh it was just an important moment for me and, and a reckoning. Sometimes, you know, flashes and moments give so much meaning to life and so much meaning to work. And this was one of those circumstances, Powell, where, uh, everything seemed to come together. I didn't realize it then. It would take years for me to fully realize it. But, uh, um, you know, it's just one of those things.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Vincent for writing that story. And, uh, Last, if we could linger on the last statement in your book, caste-like terminologies different today than before do not enjoy the same sanction they once enjoyed in the colonial regime. But neither have caste language and thought disappeared from Mexican life altogether. Caste swims in an undercurrent alongside more modern ideologies, ideologies status politics, and the doings of everyday life, all the while adapting, changing, and adjusting into the future. With this in mind, might you provide a remark on the importance information found in Before Messi Sahe in offering a sounding board and the need to reach all in society in the Americas, Mexico, to reconcile and rehabilitate hearts and minds toward post-caste discriminatory region?
0: Paul, hey, that's a fantastic question there, Paul. Um, I don't know if I have the complete answer to that, but let me take a try. Look, this book is a story about a very small group of highly racially mixed individuals who had, in some ways, um, an outsized impact on their entire social world and, and the very history of race in Latin America. I think every time you hear racial nomenclature in Latin America, it's not possible to hear that without understanding the roots and the foundations of caste. And even more, these extreme castes that are studied in this book, they reinforce the strength of the core terminologies that that you hear in the region today. So, Paul, when you hear a term like mulatto or mestizo or pardo, you know, these are terms that enjoy still some some currency today. Um, there is an inescapable debt when you hear those terms to the colonial period. And the heritage of this is it's not without its problems. In these categories, you know, there, there's still some straitjackets. You know, there's still some confinements that need to be overcome. And you can't begin to overcome them without understanding the richness of, of the history. You can't, under, you can't begin to, to, to overcome them without understanding the complexity of the story. And that work begins with a book like this. So, Paul, I hope that readers will take this to arm their conversations, to arm their thinking and their actions as as we all live our everyday lives in whatever racial landscapes we inhabit. So, Powell, um, if we're moving more towards a post-caste, post-discriminatory region, it begins with acknowledgement. It begins with history. It begins with looking for fissures, looking for opportunities, and using tools like this, this a study like this, to crack open some of the uh, some of the habits, some of the some of the tendencies, and uh, you know some of the uh, some of the uh, kind of instincts that have been cooked over time. And uh, I really hope, Powell, that this book, in some way, is a contribution uh, in that effort as we all try to move along and get better in this world.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Venson. I do agree, and I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for this in-depth look into *Before Forma the frontiers of race and caste in colonial Mexico. This talk has been very informative, providing a reflection on times that still affect today. And I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Though before we take more of your time, I would love it if you could provide the audience with a bit more of what you are currently researching or working on at this time?
0: Well, Powell, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm an administrator now. I'm the provost here at Case Western Reserve University, and uh, I have a lot less time to write, to be honest with you. I'm working right now. We're in, we're in uh, September of 2020 doing this interview and go about to go into October and we're wrestling with COVID-19. And so uh, my big project right now is, uh, trying to keep our university moving ahead. And uh, um, I hope um, through efforts like this, I'll be able to get back into the research field. Um, But right now uh, uh, I'm trying to do a different kind of work in in terms of uh, uh, making sure that, uh, that learning continues and that people are safe.
1: Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Vinson. And you're doing very important work. I thank you so much for being on New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and for providing our audience wisdom on Before Mesizaje, the frontiers of race and caste in colonial Mexico. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time.
0: Powell, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity.
1: Thank you. The honor is mine. Thank you so much.